Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison and we are excited to bring you the news. Derek, let's start with the election in Turkey. Uh, yes, uh, if you're an American Prestige subscriber, as you should be, then you would have heard Gene Bajalon and I talk about uh, this uh, earlier in the week. But uh, if you're not, uh, then uh, we should mention that Recep Tayyip Erdogan, to no great surprise, I assume, uh, the president of Turkey defeated his challenger, Kemal Kılıç Darulu, in Sunday's runoff. I believe the officially certified tally was Erdogan had 52.18% of the vote uh, to 47.82% for Kılıç Darulu. Uh, after the first round, uh, which Erdogan, in which Erdogan nearly won uh, an outright victory, uh, there was really not that much. Uh, doubt as to how the uh, runoff would eventually shake out. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know uh, how deep you want to go into this in terms of what it's all about. Uh, obviously, when the incumbent wins, there's <laughs> what, not what is as it much all to about, talk about. Derek? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Tell me what I mean, it's all about. Like, when the incumbent uh, wins, there's not as much to talk about in terms of, like, what's going to, you know, what does this mean? What's going to happen? What's going to change? It's going to be pretty much the same thing uh, for Turkey uh, as it has been for the last, you know, 20 some odd years. Every time Erdogan wins re-election and it's always, uh, it always seems to be every election is, is like, this is the chance. This is our big chance to, to stop it. Like the Turkish opposition, uh, you know, it's our big chance. This is it. We're going to do it. And then they don't. And then the analysis, especially in the West where, you know, Erdogan's relationship with the U S and with the rest of NATO is, is not always so smooth. Uh, the analysis m- goes toward well, maybe now that he's not playing to an audience for an election, uh, you know that could could lead to some policy changes. It it never uh, really seems to happen. So I mean, you know, if you're wondering, is he going to suddenly change tactics on like admitting Sweden to NATO, uh, on Turkey's treatment of the Kurds, on his relationship with uh, Turkey's relationship with Greece? Uh, or Cyprus, or any of the countries in the Eastern Mediterranean, I wouldn't expect any uh, big shifts. Uh, one thing he will have to do is at least uh, pretend or, or seem on the surface to be doing more to address Turkey's economic weakness. That was seen as his uh, big weakness going into the election was his economic record, which is somewhat checkered. Uh, but he hasn't, uh, you know, obviously that wasn't enough to, to uh, cost him the election. Uh, there has been a little bit of movement, I will note, on uh, the Sweden front, if this is something that, that particularly interests people. Joe Biden called Erdogan on Monday to congratulate him on his big win, and apparently very explicitly during that call linked the issue of Sweden getting into NATO, and Turkey is one of the two countries that has yet to to ratify that, uh, linked it very explicitly with the possibility of Turkey purchasing F-16s and F-16, we're called F-16 modernization kits from the U.S. This is something the Turks want uh, very fairly badly. It has been held up, and so there may be a quid pro quo in the in the works. Well, Derek, your man Erdogan stuck it out, so I know you're really happy. Uh, I am. I'm thrilled. He's, <laughs> he's a friend of the show, a personal 
a friend of mine. Personal mentor, happy to see hero. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, obviously, I'm always happy to see him do well. Uh, let's talk about the uh, new IAEA report in Iran. Uh, so uh, the IAEA issued its uh, regular quarterly reports uh, regarding Iran's nuclear program. This isn't something we've talked about very much recently. Uh, but uh, it's, it, these are noteworthy for a couple of reasons. One, uh, the reports uh, declare a, an end, at least, or at least temporarily an end to two of the IAEA's current investigations into Iran's nuclear program. Uh, one involves the discovery of some very highly enriched uranium, or, around 84% enriched, which is very close to weapons grade, uh, at one of Iran's enrichment facilities at Fordow. Uh, the other, uh, involves the discovery of trace amounts of, uh, what they said, what they called man-made uranium. I'm not sure if that means enriched or, or what the terminology is there, but at, a, at another facility, sensitive facility in, uh, the Iranian city of Abade, uh, apparently the IAEA has accepted Iran's explanations for both of these things uh, and hasn't found any evidence uh, to suggest that there's anything nefarious going on. So that's uh, one part of the final product here. Uh, some of the other issues uh, include the restoration of some of the IAEA's monitoring equipment at a certain, at, at a, a, a number of sensitive nuclear sites uh, this is equipment that the Iranians had removed in an effort to try to pressure the United States into re-entering the 2015 nuclear deal. So uh, they, these facilities include the enrichment plants at Natanz and Fordow and also a centrifuge workshop in Isfahan. Uh, they're still, the IAEA and Iran are still in negotiations about reinstalling uh, monitoring equipment at some other sites. And there's still a question of whether Iran will allow the data collected by this equipment to be shared with the IAEA. That's another uh, layer of this that the Iranians haven't been doing, uh, again, uh, because of the, the U.S. decision to scrap the, the 2015 deal. Uh, finally, uh, on that note, uh, the report says that the Iranians are currently sitting on uh, about 4.7 metric tons of enriched uranium, which is 23 times the cap that was imposed by the 2015 nuclear deal. Uh, they're also sitting on a supply of 60% enriched uranium that is somewhat close to the point where they could conceivably, uh, if they wanted to make a nuclear bomb, they could do that. Uh, they'd have to enrich it further uh, to get to, to the 90% mark if they wanted to, to get uh, a real weapons-grade uh, supply of uranium. There's no... Again, there's always there's never any evidence that they're doing this. That they uh, it would be somewhat asinine to do it just to produce one nuclear weapon. So uh, you know, I don't think there's any danger of that. But it's all still, uh, I think, more evidence of of what a bad decision it was to get out of that nuclear deal. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's talk about the Afghanistan Qatar meeting and uh, the Iran border clash. Yeah, this is very interesting. Uh, the uh, earlier this month, apparently, uh, the Prime Minister of Qatar, uh, Mohammed bin Abdurrahman bin Jassim Al Thani, met with the supreme leader of the Taliban, Hibatullah Khanzade, uh, in Kandahar. He's the first world leader, really, to have gotten known to have gotten an audience uh, with the man who is de facto Afghanistan's head of state. Uh, apparently, he pressed Al Khanzade on on lifting. 
bans that the Taliban has imposed on women's education and employment uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, he's the the Qataris are apparently coordinating as they engage with the Taliban, coordinating with the U.S. The Qataris have been advocating for greater international engagement with the Taliban-led government in Afghanistan. And of course, people you know may be aware of after you know twenty years of war in Afghanistan, the the, the Taliban put its political office, its sort of front-facing. Uh, forward-facing uh, political office where it interacted with uh, other, you know, officials around the world in Qatar. So the Qataris have a relationship here uh, with the Taliban, so they may be able to have some contacts that uh, other countries would not necessarily be able to have. Uh, without some movement on women's rights, there's not going to be, uh, you know, this this greater engagement that the Qataris have been calling for. But um, it, it is an interesting development that this uh, took place. Akhanzadeh is quite reclusive. So, uh, you know, the fact that uh, the Qataris were able to get this meeting is noteworthy. The other thing of note with Afghanistan is there was a shootout between Afghan and Iranian border forces over uh, the weekend uh, on the border of Afghanistan's Nimruz province. Two Iranian border guards were killed. One Afghan border guard was killed. It's unclear exactly what triggered the incident, but the relationship between these two countries, which uh, has waxed and waned in terms of Iran's relationship with the Taliban. Of course, in the 90s, uh, the Iran and the Taliban government of Afghanistan were, uh, you know, essentially almost went to war at one point with one another. I mean, they had really bad relations. Iran started to develop closer ties with the Taliban in the, I would say, latter half of the U.S. war, uh, partly as a way to, to tweak the U.S., partly as a uh, remedy against the the rise of Islamic State elements in Afghanistan and concerns that the Iranians had about that, but the relationship is now trending in in uh, a negative direction again. Mostly recently, over the issue of water rights on the Helmand River, uh, the Iranians have been complaining that that Afghanistan is using uh, is overusing the river and and depriving or denying Iran uh, its rightful. Uh, claims in terms of, of water flows downstream on the Helmut River. So uh, relations are not great right now, and any uh, instance of, of border violence is, is something to be, uh, I think, uh, you know, to be aware of. And now, Derek, on to terrible news. North Korea has failed to launch a satellite. Uh, yes, we were counting on this, actually. It was going to be a big, uh, it was going to boost our uh, American prestige signal. Uh, around the world. But uh, no, the North Koreans uh, carried out a, an attempted spy satellite launch early Wednesday. Uh, the satellite or the rocket failed uh, apparently sometime shortly after the first stage separation. Uh, rocket and payload splashed down, uh, you know, at, shortly after that. Uh, the South Korean military was the first to announce this and then uh, went out and is apparently attempting to salvage uh, parts of the rocket. Um, but North Korean media was actually surprisingly quick to note uh, the failure of the launch. And and they have said, North Korean officials have said, uh, they are going to try again. This was the sixth time that they've tried to put a spy satellite in orbit. It is one of Kim Jong-un's uh, real national security priorities uh, to do this. Uh, it's the first time they tried since 2016 uh, all the attempts uh, obviously have failed. Uh, they will undoubtedly try again after taking some time to try to assess what went wrong uh, and how to fix the problem. 
The other thing that's of note here in this uh, failed launch is that it set off a number of, I would say, premature uh, panic warnings uh, in Japan and South Korea. The uh, officials in Seoul sent out a an alert telling people to prepare to take shelter. Uh, they then subsequently rescinded those warnings and said they, they'd issued them an error. Uh, the Japanese government broadcast an advisory to people in Okinawa Prefecture uh, before they determined that the launch posed no threat. Uh, I would say, you know, there there is a risk here in, in, in situations like this that somebody's going to misinterpret. Uh, you know, if, if people are this kind of, uh, on this much uh, of a hair trigger about this sort of thing, then there's definite risk of uh, some premature order to retaliate for what looks like a missile launch. And that would be uh, obviously quite, uh, quite bad uh, from the perspective of uh, <laughs> from the know, perspective people wanting, of people who don't follow the truth of Juche. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Exactly. Uh, would not be good. Would not be good for anybody. All right, Derek, tell us about the Sudan. Uh, there's a couple of developments in Sudan. Uh, the, the good news is that on Monday, the Sudanese military and the rapid support forces agreed again to extend their ceasefire, the one that had gone into effect uh, one week prior, uh, the Monday prior, uh, that was supposed to last for seven days, so it was supposed to run out uh, on Monday evening. They agreed to extend it for another five days. Now, uh, was that really uh, necessary? Probably not, because both sides have continued fighting Throughout the ceasefire, there's no indication of much of a, uh, even much of a lull, let alone that they uh, seriously attempted to, uh, to actually stop fighting. Uh, consequently, uh, or you know, re- on a related note, then uh, the Sudanese military walked out uh, on the ongoing ceasefire truce talks with the RSF uh, that have been going on in Saudi Arabia, that have been brokered by the Saudis and the U.S. Um, they walked out, I believe, on uh, Wednesday, uh, citing the RSF's lack of commitment to implementing the ceasefire and continuously violating. Of course, the military, by all accounts, uh, had no real commitment to implementing the ceasefire either. uh, But I guess they saw an opportunity to kind of uh, uh, take a shot at the RSF and, and quit a process that wasn't really going anywhere anyway. Uh, despite the fact that this the, that there was no tangible effect to these ceasefires, there is a lot of concern, I think justifiably, that in the absence of any interaction between the, the armed forces and the RSF, uh, there there is a high potential for escalation uh, even beyond what's already going on in Sudan. So there's a, a good deal of concern there. Uh, the U.S. government, the Biden administration, announced on Thursday uh, that it is sanctioning two firms, two companies that are associated with the Sudanese military and two other companies uh, that are associated with the RSF. I don't have details on this stuff, but um, they are the first sanctions that the U.S. is impo- has imposed uh, since this conflict started on April 15th. So... Uh, it's uh, an indication probably of where things are going. Certainly the failure, uh, the breakdown of the peace talks has led to this because the U.S. probably would not have started w- rolling out the sanctions if it was still, uh, if they were still engaged diplomatically. So uh, just an indication of, I think, uh, a sense of 
I would say hopelessness on the part of the U.S. I mean, this is obviously not going to change the trajectory uh, of the conflict. It's just something to do uh, to look like uh, you know the U.S. is taking action against these these actors. Uh, but that's uh, that's where things stand, and it's uh, really not in a good place. Let's move on to Russia and Ukraine, and uh, let's start with the drone strikes in Russia. Yes, there have been a few of those this week. Uh, there was a drone strike in Moscow again on uh, early Tuesday morning that involved eight drones. Uh, uh, I would say Ukrainian drones. It's possible that they were launched by uh, one of these Russian partisan militant groups that's uh, affiliated with the Ukrainian government uh, that operates inside Russia. Actually, that's probably uh, what happened. Uh, there were no casualties. There was some damage to a few residential buildings. The, the Russians say they uh, intercepted all of the projectiles, either uh, with electronic uh, means or uh, with kinetic air defenses. There was a second uh, attack or wave of drone attacks uh, on Wednesday uh, that hit two oil refineries in Russia's Krasnodar region. One of them actually caught fire, but that fire was was later extinguished. And there are now reports of the, just Thursday before we recorded here, there were reports of new cross-border shelling rocket fire coming from Ukraine, hitting a town uh, in the Belgorod region of Russia, which has been fairly heavily battered, actually, by cross-border fire uh, in the past uh, week or so. Uh, there's a town called Shebekino uh, or Shebekina, uh, that has been intense, somewhat intensely targeted by Ukrainian fire uh, in recent days. And so that's uh, continued or even escalated a little bit. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, these are uh, some uh, new developments, I guess. The, uh, the intensity of the activity that's happening in Russia is, uh, is somewhat unusual uh, for the pace of this conflict to date. Thanks, Derek. What about the unrest in Kosovo? Uh, this is potentially of concern uh, because it involves NATO uh, and, uh, you know, of course, anything uh, in the Balkans could, uh, as we we should know by now from history, uh, could turn uh, very bad very quickly. Uh, at least 30 NATO peacekeepers were injured on Monday uh, in clashes sparked by ethnic Serb opposition to uh, the recent uh, elections in, in four municipalities in northern Kosovo, uh, predominantly, which is a predominantly Serb, uh, ethnically Serb region. Um, the, the Kosovan government, uh, late last month, or, or well, uh, actually late April now, I, uh, I shouldn't say last month, uh, but in late April, uh, held elections in these four municipalities. They were boycotted by Kosovan Serbs as a result. The turnout rate across all four elections was somewhere around 3.4, 3.5%. Uh, obviously, you know, uh, too low for any legitimate election to have taken place. Uh, nevertheless, the Kosovan government has decided or decided last week to go ahead and install the winners of the four mayoral races all of whom are ethnic Albanians because, of course, the Serbs didn't vote. So uh, unsurprisingly, the Albanian candidates won. 
uh, that has that provoked uh, protests and and you know violent uh, in some cases protests in the affected communities by Serbs who do not want uh, to be uh, governed by ethnic Albanian mayors. Uh, that in turn prompted NATO peacekeepers to go on alert. The Serbian government put its security forces on alert just to you know in- indicate again that this could uh, become something much bigger without a lot of uh, pushing. Uh, and that sparked the clashes on Monday. Uh, now, the Prime Minister of Kosovo, uh, Alban Kurti, has suggested that there could be uh, a redo uh, of the election that that he would be willing to consider a snap election. But it doesn't sound like he's prepared to do that without these mayors at least uh, taking office and serving for some period of time. And he's not going to do it uh, while the... Uh, while these protests are going on. So he's made that uh, fairly clear. The Biden administration, interestingly, has uh, been very critical of Kurti's government uh, for going ahead and installing these people, these mayors. Uh, he has, uh, or they have, uh, they made the decision to exclude Kosovo from an upcoming NATO exercise in which it was to take part. Uh, there's been a, a fair amount of rhetorical criticism uh, and so, uh, Kurti seems a little bit hurt by that. He gave an interview, I think, to the Washington Post, uh, on Thursday where he was, uh, you know, very, uh, kind of plaintive about, uh, complaining about this criticism that he's getting. But anyway, uh, the upshot is, this is a very tense situation. And, uh, as I say, could, could escalate without a whole lot of, uh, encouragement. Thanks, Derek. And let's end on a brief new Cold War update with uh, China refusing the defense minister's meeting. Yes, uh, the Wall Street Journal broke this story on Monday, but it's since been reported in a number of other places. The Chinese government uh, received a request from the Biden administration to have uh, the defense ministers of both countries, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and Chinese Defense Minister Li Shangfu, uh, have a meeting on the sidelines of the Shangri-La Dialogue, which is this huge annual uh, Asian defense forum that, that takes place uh, in Singapore and is is happening this coming weekend, uh, the 2023 version. Uh, the Chinese government rejected that request. Um, this is, I have seen this portrayed uh, as, you know, yet another inexplicable decision by the Chinese government to refuse contact with the U.S. and uh, standing in the way of better relations with Washington. But in fact, uh, it, it turns out that the U.S. government has been sanctioning Li Shangfu since 2018. Uh, now, uh, graciously, the Biden administration has said that those sanctions would not preclude a meeting with between with U.S. officials uh, and Lee, but the Chinese government has said, you know, this is insulting. It's embarrassing. Uh, we're not going to make Lee available to meet with any U.S. officials until these sanctions are lifted. Uh, this is uh, part and parcel, I think, of of the Chinese government's desire to be viewed as an equal world power with the United States. It views uh, these sanctions that the U.S., these designations that the U.S. makes on Chinese officials as insulting and beneath them, really, uh, and and just, you know, doesn't accept them. Uh, and so, you know, you get this kind of interaction. The Biden administration has made no indication that it's going to reconsider uh, the sanctions. So the, the meeting is definitely not going to happen. And this is going to continue, I think, to come up over and over again if uh, the administration has any intention of 
really engaging with China diplomatically, it's going to have to think about uh, sanctions as a, as a detriment to that or as an impediment to that. Thank you, sweet, sweet Derek. You have brought us the news and we are all grateful for it. Everyone, we'll see you soon. I know I am. For sure. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>